Uh, today we continue our series through the story of God, walking from the very beginning uh, where God created the heavens and the earth and everything we see, and then we are moving slowly through these high points in Scripture uh, showing how each and every one of them are connected to make uh, one big theme and one big story all the way through. Today we will be looking into the book of Exodus and the giving of the law. So we're excited to jump into that with you. I want to invite right now now, my friend Zach Hunter to come up and reads to us from the book of Exodus today. Good morning. As Drew said, my name is Zach, and I'm a member here at Sunnybrook, and I am so excited to have the joy of reading Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21 this morning. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Good morning. My name is Ryan. And it will be my privilege to share with you today from the book of Exodus. We've actually uh, been in Genesis now for three weeks. And... Um, quite a bit, I mean, though, we, though we're covering scripture over the span of a single semester, um, three weeks in Genesis is probably even still not enough. And yet, as we move through the story, we've made a big jump to get to Mount Sinai. So I know Drew did this last week, but I think it's important for us to continue to reiterate the story. And we're going to spend a lot of our time today asking, what role do these tablets, the Ten Commandments representative of the entire law, What role do they play in the whole story? How should we see them here so that we can understand that cross and that empty grave and that eternity with the Lord better? So we've already spent a week talking about the fact that God creates and everything is his and everything is good. And then a week talking about the fact that we mess things up and they're tempters and then God has to deal with sin and judgment, and he is just, and he is righteous. And then we talk about the fact that he, he deals with sin in surprising ways, even sacrificial ways, even substitutionary ways. And then we're gonna talk about a mountain and some tablets, because we're heading towards a king who installs a kingdom and a house of worship. But even that doesn't suffice, and so we're gonna have to talk in Isaiah and Jeremiah about the need for new hearts, for the law to be written on these hearts. 
Because in the end, God is going to have to deal with our sin yet again, and it seems as repeatedly he does, as the people are conquered. So when uh, Ezra and Nehemiah have to rebuild what has been destroyed and foretold by Jeremiah, we get a better, better sense of what God is up to, and then God comes in human form, and he works miracles that involve fish, and then he talks about this harvest and being connected to him in a vine, and then this happens. But then that happens. So this is, this is huge, and yet it's not permanent because the grave is empty. And then Acts 2 and 3 show up, and we have Pentecost, which is barreling towards, if the nations are here worshiping in Jerusalem, in eternity the nations will be worshiping the Lamb who stands as though slain in Revelation 4 and 5, which heads towards Revelation 21 and 22, where we have the second tree, the greater tree, the eternal tree that gives life and healing waters. We begin in the garden and we end in the garden, and yet we, we stop here in the desert. Now let me catch you up on how we get from uh, the near sacrifice of Isaac to, to Mount Sinai. Because Isaac, of course, is not sacrificed. And then Jacob, his son, becomes Israel. And then he has numerous sons, one of which is Joseph, who preserves the nation. And then we find ourselves in Egypt. Genesis closes. Exodus 1, Egypt. We're no longer, like Joseph, in favor with the, the powers that be. Pharaoh has forgotten Joseph. The people of Israel are now subjugated in slavery, have been for about 400 years. And Moses, who is saved in this incredible, miraculous way, is raised in Pharaoh's household. And then he, is, he, he finds himself frustrated at the injustice against his people. He kills a, a, a taskmaster and then he flees to the desert. He actually goes to, to Sinai. At Sinai, he encounters God in a bush that burns but won't burn up. God reveals who he is. He says, my name is I Am. I am Yahweh. Go back. So Egypt to Sinai, back to Egypt. Let my people go. Ten plagues, which are actually ten victories of Yahweh God asserting his dominance over ten Egyptian deities one by one. First Passover. The people leave, they escape through the sea. God destroys the Egyptian army in the sea, and then the people leave, and there's dramatic music. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they wander into the Sinai Peninsula, and they come to this mountain, and we get the law. Now, there are things across this stage where if you were to ask me, tell the story of the Bible to believers, most of this is going to ring true and good and it makes sense and I can even put it in order. Tell the story of the Bible to a world that does not know God. This, that was probably familiar. They would probably be aware of that. Some of this, not so much. Um, for sure, that and then the church. And then, but they would have opinions about all of it. Share the gospel using this stage. And if we're honest with ourselves, in many ways, public enemy number one when sharing the gospel is to talk about all of God's restrictions and limitations. I can talk about his grace with incredible ease, but I have a hard time talking about his thoughts on whether or not you wear mixed poly blends or you've eaten shrimp this week. And on what he has to do with how you arrange your life in terms of ethics. That part, I, I, maybe we can save that for some advanced level Christian classes. Instead, let's just talk about the grace part. Everyone would like a bit of grace. But this part, it bothers us. So I think our, our task this morning is to ask, what role does the law play in this story? There are many different approaches to understanding the role of the law today in the life of a, a modern day believer. Um, I think primarily we look at the law as that which restrains but cannot give life. 
as that which explains how broken we are. Because the law, we can even concede, it's perfect. Anybody ever kept the law? No. So we need grace. We use law as the springboard to grace. This is actually a a common theme with the reformers. Martin Luther put it this way, 16th century reformer. He says, the law has its terminus defining how far it is to go and what it is to achieve, namely, to terrify the impenitent with the wrath and displeasure of God and drive them to Christ. In other words, Martin Luther says the law's best use is to show you how bad you are. And then, after the law has broken you down, because it is this insatiable beast that cannot be dealt with, as it breaks you down, you're ready to hear the story of the cross. You're ready to hear the story of grace. One of his contemporaries, Philip Melanchthon, says this, the law shows the disease, the gospel, the cure. He looks at things like the Ten Commandments. He says, this just exposes how sick we are. And that will fix us. Others find the law to be an unfortunate obstacle to evangelism. Famously, five or six years ago, a pastor in Atlanta said that one of the most important things for the health of the church and its ongoing trajectory is that we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And he took considerable firestorm for it. There was a lot of heat that came down on him when he was preaching from Acts chapter 15. Now, Acts 15, you got to give him some credit and some context. It is the story of the church coming together in the middle of the, the book of Acts and asking, hey, can Gentiles get in too? And Paul and Barnabas have been out on the mission field. And they say, you should see what the Spirit is doing out there with people who do not follow this law, who are not by their nature Jewish or Israelites, who do not follow the ceremonial calendar or the dietary laws. They are eating bacon out here, and somehow the Spirit is still working through them. And they ask, what do we do? And this preacher in Georgia, he says, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament for the sake of evangelism. And then he went and he further clarified, and I think this is helpful. Let's give him, let's let him explain himself. He says, well, I never suggested we unhitch from a passage of Scripture or a specific biblical imperative. Again, I was preaching through Acts 15, where Peter, James, and Paul recommended the first century church unhitch. My word, I'm open to an alternative. The law of Moses from the gospel being preached to the Gentiles in Antioch. He said, I'm a pastor in suburban Georgia. When I start talking about all of this, it's just an obstacle to that. This is not the story of Georgian suburbanites. This made sense to preach in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's their history. But now, to a Western world full of Gentiles, let's talk about that cross and that empty tomb and the grace that's available to all and not bind people with data from this far back in the book. I get what he's saying, I think. I think he's misunderstood the role of the law in the whole story. I think if we look at the order of events, this, I don't know how, how many of you are real details people. Last week, this, the, the tablets were over there and the mountain was right here, and this week I switched them because they were chronologically out of order. Israel gets to the mountain, encounters God, and then the tablets. The order matters, and the order tells us so much about how God intends to work with his people. Let's just go through and look at, we're gonna go back to Exodus 19. Zach did a great job reading from Exodus 20. We're gonna read from Exodus 19 and see what happens when they first get to the mount. Verses three and four. 
of Exodus 19. Moses went up to the mountain, uh, the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob, that be Israel, and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verses 3 and 4. Now, I've split the screen here to help us follow the series of events because they really, really are important. The law has not been given. The nation has been delivered from Egypt. They arrive at Mount Sinai, and God says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. We should read that as, I've already crushed your oppressors. I've already delivered you from your bondage. And then next, how I carried you on eagles' wings. That's a beautiful, poetic way of saying, I've, I've protected you this whole time. The law hasn't been given yet. But I've defeated your enemies, I've delivered you from bondage, and I've protected you along the way. Verse 5, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. It's Exodus 19. That's Exodus 20. God has delivered them from their enemies saved them from their bondage, protected them in the desert, and now he invites them into relationship. If you will, if you will. And then he tells them that he is choosing them to be his own possession. Then the law. You see how that undermines so much of how we talk about the law. The law is this taskmaster that cannot be satisfied. This law is this measuring state. You can never do it. You will never be able to please God by fulfilling the law, not because he doesn't love his law, not because the law isn't perfect, it's because you're not perfect. You can't meet the requirements God has for you. But he chose them first and then gave them the law. Exodus 20, then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. You could almost redact who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and just put, I'm the Lord your God who saved you. Now follow me. I already saved you. Now follow me. And he does so with personal names, with unique affection for his people. Exodus chapter three, he already told Moses his personal, I am the I am. I am the existing one. My name is Yahweh. Who should I tell is sending me? Tell them Yahweh sent you. It gets really personal. He saves them from their oppressors, takes them to the mountain and says, if you want to have a relationship with me, your savior, I will make you my special, beloved people. I don't know if we understand how revolutionary this is in this part of the world and in this part of history. People did not know what their gods wanted. They had to guess. I guess that's the name of the game when your gods aren't real. But there was all this mystery surrounding religion in the ancient Near East. And it just sounds exhausting. For example, I have copied here on the screen a section from a prayer that would have been from the same time period, roughly the 15th century B.C., same time period, but this would have been a prayer in a language called Akkadian, 
So it would have been from further east of the Sinai Peninsula where um, Babylon and Assyria would later rise to power. But this is a prayer to their God. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. It's just like, I got to cover all my bases because I don't have enough information about you. I don't know what you want. Oh, my Lord, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. Oh, my God, many are my wrongs, great my sins. My goddess, many are my wrongs, great my sins. Oh, God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. Oh, goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do not know what wrong I have done. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know what abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. This prayer is soaked in anguish. They don't know what to do. Israel shows up at this mountain and God says, I'll tell you exactly who I am. I'm the Lord your God. Don't have anybody else but me. This is what I want you to do. Don't make idols. Keep the Sabbath. Obey your parents. Actually, there's a number of scholars that have started to call the, the Ten Commandments the bill of other people's rights. God says, let me tell you who I am and what life lived out in my kingdom as a nation of priests is going to look like. They don't have to ask. They don't have to wonder. I think we so often read these passages in the Old Testament. Exodus 20 begins this series of laws. And then you'll have laws and then narrative and laws and narrative and laws and narrative all throughout Leviticus and Numbers. And then you get to Deuteronomy and we start over because everybody else has died. So it's like, listen up, second time, hope you get it right. Laws, 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 613 of them. That are written, by the way, and scholars assume there were many, many more. 613 recorded laws. I think that the most common response from you and I is, wow, that sounds exhausting. I don't think that's what Israel thought. I think they were very familiar with the Akkadian religions and other Canaanite religions and where you just got to guess and you got to cover all your bases and you got to do everything you can to satisfy the gods. And finally, they show up to the mountain. Yahweh God says, I'm going to tell you who I am. We look at this as a burden. They looked at it as a gift. We look at this as something that presupposes grace, that, that, that predates grace, the Israelites looked at this as God's grace itself. What do you want? Okay, I'll tell you. Don't have any other gods. Don't worship idols. Don't abuse your employees. The Sabbath law was not about you getting a healthy night's sleep. It was about making sure you did not abuse your workforce. Honor your parents. But all of that came after God saved them. A lady named Carmen Imes, Carmen Joy Imes says this, God saved them first and then gave them instructions on how to live life as free men and free women. The law was not binding to them, it was life-giving. It gave them freedom. Imagine if we were to build a brand new elementary school in any city, pick a city, doesn't matter. You're going to build it in a relatively busy part of the city, adjacent to um, roads that have some degree of heavy traffic. Well, what do schools need? They need good playgrounds. We got to get a nice playground in there. That's a good thing. I think that would be a real gift to the children of that community. Now, the, the freest thing, the kindest thing we can do is to build them a playground with no limitations. So, like, 
We're not gonna build an offense budget, right? Just playground equipment next to the busy intersection. Because we don't wanna restrain them. We don't wanna restrict them. That would, be, that would limit their freedoms. Actually, the data says that if you were to give children um, a, a section of ground to play on next to a busy road, that it causes two problems. One, it creates danger for those who don't realize that there's danger because they could go into traffic. But the second problem is a little more unexpected. The second problem is they've noticed that children just tend to huddle towards the center anyway because they know there's danger. And that the second you put up a fence with a very clear boundary that protects them, then the children roam to the extents of the boundary. So rather than this being a negative limitation, Israel finally found a framework in which to flourish. And God rescues them before they even have a chance to obey any of those laws. This fits well with our understanding of the grace that we get to experience at the foot of the cross and as a consequence of the empty grave. Paul says famously in Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. That is a gift. That's also a gift. And it's not from works so that no one can boast. God gave them work to do, but not before saving them. And that whole paradigm seems to hold throughout the story. So here's what I want to do as we kind of connect this to the latter half of the story. I just want to go and ask if, if this can be something that is a little bit of the black sheep on the stage. If this is public enemy number one as we are trying to share the story of who God is and why it would be awesome to commit your life to him, oh, I don't really want to talk about those laws. Why don't we ask those early evangelists who were taking this gospel that is displayed here on the stage and taking it out into the Gentile world. I want to ask Paul and Peter, what do we do with this stuff? Because they were out preaching the gospel of God's grace. And this is really, really true and really, really important. God's grace is free. There's no question there's nothing you can do to merit it. It was given here at Sinai before there were given instructions on how to live into that grace. It is given without merit. God will even say, I chose you because I chose you. He makes fun of Israel in some sense. He's like, you just didn't even have any, you have no chariots, you have no horse, you have nothing to offer me. You are a ragtag community of peasant farmers that have been struggling in Egypt. I chose you because I chose you. You brought nothing to the table. God's grace is free. And thanks be to God for everyone in the room. However, it isn't cheap. The invitation into covenant relationship with this Yahweh who's revealed himself is a gift. It is not something that can be earned by good behavior. But neither is it a blank check that you can fill out any way you please. God did not say, you will be my people, and I will make you a nation of priests. So go get them. You'll be my people, and I will make you my treasured possession, distinct and apart from all the other peoples of the earth. This is how you're going to do it. Now, I want to kind of, uh, as we look at Paul and Peter, we're going to be primarily in Ephesians and in 1 Peter. I want to track this idea. So along the left side of the screen, I'm going to build out a sentence that I hope established. We, we reach a conclusion that says, God's grace is indeed free, but it is costly. I almost put God's grace is free, but there are strings attached, but I thought that that would be such a radical statement that it would just be distracting for the next 20 minutes. So God's grace is free, 
It isn't cheap. A lot of times I like to teach this in classrooms. God's grace is free, but it will cost you your life to keep it. We're going to build this out. And we're going to look at how does God work with Israel and how does God work with his church in very similar ways as he chooses and then gives tasks. And then those tasks prove who we are over time. So first, God's election will create a nation or a people. When God selects, when he chooses, he is setting apart for himself a people. Maybe it's Israel, maybe it's the church. Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He chose us. I do not have the time or the desire to run down the predestination question today. So I'll give you two options that are very biblical. Either he predestined you before the beginning of time, and that's that, or he predestined the church before the beginning of time, and that's that. The baptismal waters don't really seem to care which one's true. You become chosen whenever you become part of his people. Whether that happened in eternity past, for you specifically, or for the church, that's another conversation. The text says he chose us. That's great. So he is electing for himself a special group of people to be a nation of priests or a nation of priests. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So his election has created for himself a nation Peter says it this way, opening up his great letter to those who were quite oppressed in Asia Minor. He says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen, chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. God's election of Israel creates a nation called Israel, and his election of his people, the church, creates a special, special people that is chosen among all the others of the earth. You know there are people who are not Israel and there are people who are not of the church. God has this special affection for those he chooses. But to be a part of that nation, you have to share a citizenship. Election creates a nation and that nation is defined by a shared citizenship. Paul says later in Ephesians, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, effectively citizens of some other kingdom, but now you're fellow citizens of the saints. I love that. I often describe the process of conversion as, Paul will also say, you are enemies of God. Apart from the mercy of Christ and apart from your allegiance to him, you are an enemy of God. And the, 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 the process of becoming a believer, of deciding to, to switch your allegiance to Christ is to lay down arms and walk across the battle lines and pick up arms for the other team. He says, you've renounced your citizenship of the kingdom of darkness and you've taken on a new citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. You're fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we are now citizens of one household, one building, one temple. We're a nation. Peter says this, but you are a chosen race 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that sounds quite familiar. That sounds very Exodus 19-y. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Like I, I, you can only like look back into um, a, a historical situation so much, but I just can't imagine Peter doesn't have a little Exodus scroll open on the tabletop as he writes this. He is stealing phrases from God's election of Israel prior to the giving of the law. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you were not citizens of this kingdom, but now you are. Now you are marked out as God's people. God is at the helm. You are a citizen of whatever he rules. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So if election creates the nation, and then that nation, to be a member of it, is demonstrated by our citizenship, a shared citizenship in that kingdom, how do we make sure that people understand, that others know, that we even ourselves comprehend that we are in fact citizens of this kingdom? We follow the law. We follow the law. When the law is written on our hearts, we are, our citizenship is demonstrated by our allegiance to the king. Yahweh tells Israel, you're mine. Now act like it. And they were thrilled. God, through the blood of Christ and the life found in an empty tomb, says, if you will, Exodus 19, 5, if you will, if you want to be in covenant with me, it's available. And when we lay down arms, cross the battle lines and say, I am now a member of this kingdom. I am now a citizen of this nation. Prove it. It's demonstrated by our allegiance to the king. And we read from Exodus 19 and 20, but later on in Exodus 24, Moses goes down and tells everyone the news. He's like, hey guys, remember the God who destroyed Egypt, took care of us in the desert, wants to be in relationship with us, and is willing to set us apart from every other nation on earth to make us his special possession? Uh-huh. This is, this is what he wants. And they didn't say, oh, fine, I guess we'll do that. They were overjoyed to know who he is, who they were now, and what life under God's good provision looks like from this point forward. Moses came, this is Exodus 24, 3. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Now there's no question, they didn't do it perfectly. That's this part of the story, this part of the story, that part of the story, that part of the story. We need this part of the story because that's coming, because that's coming, because they didn't do it. But my goodness, were they excited to have the opportunity and to have the clarity of a God whose name they knew and whose expectations were clear. And it's, it's not just because making him happy is the way to avoid the punishment. It's because this is the way to live life to the fullest. This isn't some arbitrary thing to just see if we can get him to do it. It's because this is where human flourishing is found under God's program. You'll see this in a lot of Pauline letters. It's so interesting that we want to talk about the law versus the gospel. Paul's letters are always backwards. He usually waxes and wanes about the gospel and then concludes by talking about what we do in response. It's gospel, then instruction. 
Not instruction versus gospel. Gospel, then instruction. Ephesians is arranged almost as neatly as any book. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. This is what God did. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. This is what we do in response. So Ephesians 4 begins like this. After three chapters of some of the most soaring gospel language you can find in the scriptures. Therefore I... The prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he starts to talk about our unity again. He starts to talk about our shared citizenship in this singular kingdom as a nation of priests. There is one body, one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, there's election again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. God has elected you to be a member of his kingdom. So demonstrate that citizenship by walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Peter says it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. You're already a stranger. You're already an exile. You're already part of God's elect, his chosen people who are living out in the dispersion, out in the diaspora, out in Asia Minor, suffering for your faith that you already have. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he awaits. Again, I think I understand what Andy Stanley means when he says we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament for the sake of missional uh, utility. This can just really bog down the message. People don't like being told what to do. Good news is that has been true for all of human history. That's not some new Western thing. People don't like being told what to do. So let's just skip over this stuff for now. We'll come back to it. We're not going to like cut it out of our Bibles, but we'll come back to it later after you've been a Christian for 10, 12 years and you're bored with the grace stuff. We'll go do the Old Testament history stuff. And let's just, for the sake of the mission, go straight there. Peter says, walk in faithful obedience so that when people see what you're doing and who you're living for, they will glorify God. He doesn't say, at least in this case, skip to the grace part. He says, when you live out your election, when you live out your citizenship, when you walk in the obedience that the Lord has called you to, when you walk out a life that sits under the instruction of God, whether it is do not kill and do not covet, or it is do not hate and do not lust, God will be glorified even if the world doesn't get it. And then it all spins back on itself. Because if election creates a nation and the nation is defined by a shared citizenship and your citizenship is demonstrated by your allegiance to the king, well, then that allegiance just confirms the fact that you're elected. Different book, but still Paul. Galatians 3. I I should preface this with, for Paul... Faith is not belief. It's not cognitive assent. Faith is more tangible than that. It's to entrust yourself to something completely. It's to entrust yourself to such a, to such a degree that if that thing were to pr- be proven false, then your whole life falls apart. Faith is everything. Faith is walking across a bridge trusting that it holds up. It's that kind of faith. He says, you then know that those who have faith, those who have committed themselves to demonstrating the allegiance they have in Christ, These are Abraham's sons. When they showed up at the mountain, they wanted to know who this God was. When Moses went back to Egypt to tell them, hey guys, let's leave, it's the God of your fathers is calling us out. 
It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's calling us out. It's a very particular God who calls us out. And Paul says, for those of you who walk in faith, for those of you who demonstrate your allegiance to Christ, these are Abraham's sons. Now, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you, and consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. To bend the knee to Christ and to walk in faithful obedience to him is to yoke ourselves to the covenant of Genesis 12 and to become part of the blessing to all the nations. It can be so fruitless to talk about works versus faith, and yet it's so common. But again, I'll draw your attention back to the idea that grace is free, but it is not cheap. So we need not pit works versus faith Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, well, he had an important man of God on a mountain giving instructions. Later on, in northern Galilee, on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, you'd have an important man of God named Jesus giving instructions from a mount. And he says this after uh, saying that he did not come to get rid of this but to fulfill it. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, hey, just lean on the whole grace thing. Later, one of his most uh, productive followers will say something along the lines of, should I sin all the more so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. It's like instruction and grace go together. Instruction and covenantal relationship with God tend to go together. At the end of that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Having just given a lot of instructions, he says, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine doesn't act on them. You could almost write in the margin of your Bible, anyone who plans to follow me in a lawless way, Anyone who plans to follow me in a I'm going to fill in the check for whatever amount I would like to kind of way, anyone who wants to follow me and do it their way instead of mine will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded the house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes. Now, I intentionally only read you verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 earlier, because verse 10 is the conclusion to this whole idea, that we can't pit faith against works. It is not law, then gospel, and instead of law, we have gospel. It's that God's instruction. While we cannot keep it in some perfect form, it nevertheless leads us to the gospel. And then on the other side of embracing that gospel is instruction. Paul says in Ephesians 2, for you are saved by grace through faith. Grace is free. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It's a free gift. And it's not from works so that no one can boast. You can do nothing to merit it. However, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, this is not a sermon that just, uh, you know, with the intent of saying, you know God's bossy and he's allowed to be bossy, right? (laughs) Although that is true. Um, 
No. If you're asking, what do I do with this? If the law sets up a paradigm of redemption and then instruction that will carry through, what do I do with this? Well, a number of suggestions. Let's drink deeply at the well of biblical wisdom and learn what God's instructions are. To some extent, we've we've spent this entire time talking about them in the abstract, but he has very real instructions. Go and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says, this is how you pray. This is how you fast. Go and read the epistles. They give very real instruction, and we should drink deeply at the well of biblical wisdom. We should also, as a nation of kingdom of priests, holy and blameless before the Lord, we should posture ourselves where we are willing to hear the correction of a brother or sister. Because as a nation with shared citizenship, it's doing everything we can to work out the allegiance that we have. We're all under the same degree of instruction. We're all servants of the king. This is not a place for hubris and pride. The church is a a wonderful institution where humility reigns supreme and where a loving rebuke is seen as kindness to us. And we should invite that. I'm not saying it will be easy. I'm not saying it won't hurt. But if God has saved us, and if in that sense our election is secure, well, why wouldn't we want to conform to his instruction that comes as a result? And I just don't know anybody that can do it on their own. And then perhaps most importantly, when all else fails, we remember that grace is free. And we can't exhaust God's grace. No matter what you or I have done to this point, we can't find the end of his grace so long as we remain citizens of his kingdom and we submit to his authority and we heed his instruction and we embrace a life of repentance. We can't find the end of his grace. So let's find out how he has instructed us to live Let's ask others to help us do it well. And then let's be humble enough to repent and ask God to continue saving us, though he already has completely so. Which is why this meal that we share every week can be so helpful. It's a weird way of describing communion, perhaps. It's helpful But it's such a wonderful reminder that my election was given to me freely, but it wasn't cheap. It cost a lot. And it's to a God who's willing to do this that I have to be willing to submit in obedience. And then when all else fails, every single week, I get to sit together with my brothers and sisters who have likewise failed and be reminded that this grace will never, ever run out. This is the body that was given for you. And the blood poured out for your redemption. Amen.